Look, if we talked about this subject 20 years ago, you would have said, that's unbelievable. I mean, it's almost ridiculous that a man would say he wants to become a woman or a woman wants to become a man. You're out of your mind. If that's the perversion of our day. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We have just begun a study in the book of James. Today, Dr. Brogy continues his biblical exposition of James in chapter 1. Having looked at James, the half-brother of Jesus as the author, Pastor Carl continues to examine how the brothers of Jesus viewed him during the time of his ministry while here on earth. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues his lesson on the book of James. His own people really thought he had lost it at this point. These brothers. Now, what was their motivation on this occasion in John 7? Why did they want him to go to Jerusalem? Well, again, some think that, you know, indeed, they had a malignant hatred. We've just dismissed that. Some think, well, if mom is really right, and he is the Messiah, and these works we've been hearing about then go to Jerusalem and and express them. And of course, on top of that, you know, there was probably some uh, consternation they were feeling every time they went to the synagogue in, in Nazareth, and they would have liked to have settled it. I mean, here's the one who's talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. He's out of his mind. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And the key to understanding the motivation of these half-brothers is if. And it means precisely that. If you do these things, if you really do these works, then go and show yourself, and we will believe you too. A different kind of if, but on that occasion at the temptation, Satan said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Satan challenged Jesus, if if you're really the Messiah, then prove it. And that's kind of what they're doing. And by the way, Jesus never took that route. He never took the route of sensationalism and emotionalism. He always opened up the Scriptures. And everything he did was based on the sound teaching of the Scripture. And if you follow some thrill-seeker pastor, sooner or later you're going to need a greater thrill. And you'll be let down. But that's the way a lot of churches and ministries are built. But don't put your stamp of approval on a church or a ministry based on the entertainment value or the sensation or the emotion that it gives you. People, why do you choose that church? It really makes me feel good. You know, I love the worship, whatever that means. A healthy ministry is always evaluated based on the teaching that is going on. You cannot evaluate a ministry based on its size, its mass, the sensation, the emotion, but on the teaching. That's true biblical discipleship. For not even his brothers were believing in him. That seems so incredible. They lived in the same home for 30 years. Now remember, during those 30 years, he didn't do a single miracle. Not until he begins his public ministry. But what is it? Why is it they couldn't embrace what he claimed about himself, what mom said about him? Well, maybe it was jealousy. And think about it. You grow up in a family of seven kids. Jesus never got a spanking. Jesus was never reprimanded. Everything he always did was always correct. 
In fact, there is a psalm that predicts this, which again tells us Jesus had real brothers. It's Psalm 69. It's a psalm that is quoted not only in the Gospels, but in the Acts of the Apostles and in the book of Romans. There are a number of Davidic psalms that not only related to King David himself, but also looked way into the future of the Messiah himself. And one of those psalms is Psalm 69. In the Gospel of John, it's already been quoted in the second chapter, where Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple, and he quotes Psalm 69, zeal for thy house has consumed me. Most of us know at least the two other times it is referenced when Jesus is on the cross in Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That's Psalm 69, a messianic psalm. It's quoted 12 times in the New Testament. But let me remind you of one verse today from that psalm that's especially important in light of what we're studying. Verse 8 of Psalm 69, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Please note it was not his mother, not his sisters, but his brothers that thought he had gone crazy with a Messiah context. So we just read his brothers therefore said, depart, go to Judea, show yourself. In addition, having felt some jealousy, they probably felt a certain degree of embarrassment, maybe resentment. And I'm sure they resented the disgrace that they felt every time they went to worship there in the synagogue in Nazareth. Listen to these words again. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Now, that's an interesting reading. He's writing this 900 years before Bethlehem. Since Jesus was not Joseph's natural son, the psalmist by the pen of King David does not speak of my father's sons, which would be the typical reading, but my mother's sons. But praise God, these brothers ultimately came to faith, and here they are in this upper room waiting for the promise of the Spirit. As I've already noted, God uses two of his brothers to give us two books in the New Testament. So back here to James 1.1. Stay with me. This is foundational. Don't drift on me. Some of you are nodding off. Stay with me. James, a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a bondservant. He's a doulos. He's a slave. Now, he speaks to him as Lord. Sometimes kurios is just a term of respect, not for James in this context. He is going to mention in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And then he will say in verse 7, and the Lord, kurios. So he's identifying Jesus as the Lord. He's affirming his deity. What changed it for these men? The resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And notice James doesn't open this letter. I am James. You know, Jesus' brother dropping a name. He's going to speak against that before he's done with this letter. But no, I am James the slave, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, because his real relationship to Jesus is not physical, it is spiritual. This is the James who writes this epistle, and he ends up on the leadership team in the Jerusalem church, taking the place of James, the son of Zebedee, who's executed. And if you remember on that day when Peter is in prison for preaching the gospel, and an angel, you know, sends someone to interrupt the prayer meeting, 
and uh, she's knocking on the door, and no one answers. Oh, it must be his angel. Well, they're praying for Peter to be released, and the angel says, report these things to James and to the brethren. By this time, James is what we would call the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. In Galatians 1.18, then three years later, Paul's giving his testimony, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul recognizes James is the Lord brother, and he recognizes that James is an apostle. So we will often refer to him as the apostle James. And so by the time Galatians is written, James, along with Peter and John, they're referred to in Galatians 2 as pillars of the church. Then in Acts 15, there's a council, the Jerusalem council, and they're trying to figure out how are we going to deal with all these Gentile converts who are coming to faith, and how are we going to mix up the Jews with the Gentiles? And the one who leads the council is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the senior pastor who becomes an apostle after the resurrection. He's the only James who can fit the billet. And by the way, when you listen to his speech and read the words that are quoted of him, the same style is reflected in the epistle of James. And then on top of that, we have what we call external evidence. People who lived after the apostles, who wrote about the apostles, and, and all of the external evidence without exception, whether it's Eusebius or Origen or uh, Polycarp, all these church fathers said there was one author for the epistle of James, and it's the half-brother of Jesus. Now, that's, I spent a lot of time on that, but I'm telling you, it's going to become very important to you before we're done. Third, who are the recipients? I'm actually almost done. Who are the recipients? Here in verse 1, we learn to whom James is writing. James, a bondservant. And he is writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. He's writing to those who are dispersed abroad. Now, if you drop back to Acts 8, or you can just listen to it, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we're told Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. Stephen had just given this incredible sermon. He went through the whole Old Testament. He proved Jesus was the Messiah that was prophesied. And we're told that Saul is in hearty approval. He gives leadership to the execution of this deacon. And on that day, when Stephen was murdered, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. That term scattered becomes a very important term in the New Testament. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen because God's men are always buried. No cremation in the Bible. God's way is through burial. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over them him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He put them in prison. So after Stephen had been murdered, some bloodthirsty religious zealots thought, here's an ideal time to go against these Jewish believers here in the city of Jerusalem. People were beaten. They were forced to flee their homes. They were sent off to prison, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered... Diaspero, it's the verb of the same noun that James just used in James 1.1. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. They did not use their circumstances to bellyache and to complain, 
but rather as a pulpit. They didn't, the text doesn't say those who are scattered went about griping and groaning. Oh my, where's the Lord when we need him? All this persecution. No, they went about preaching the word. I hear more Christians belly aching about COVID. What an opportunity to preach the word. What an opportunity for us to reach people for Jesus. Now, notice the word scattered in, again in Acts 11 and verse 19. So those who are scattered. So there becomes a category that starts in Acts 8 when the church is persecuted and they become the scattered one of these 12 tribes who are scattered all to these different places. So those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. Now remember, the church in the early days, as recorded in the Acts, was largely Jewish at first. It's not until Acts chapter 10 that the first Gentile believes on Jesus. And so at this stage of the church, he is writing James 1-1 to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. It's the, ver, it's the noun form of what we just read in Acts, the scattered ones. He's writing to the scattered ones, the diaspora. They're scattered like seed to different places. Now, you will find as you read this book of James, it's a very Jewish book because he's writing to 12 tribes, to Jewish people. And in the 108 verses that you will read, there are 22 references to the 39 books of the Old Testament. And we'll look at many of those as we work through the book. 22 allusions to 39 books of the Old Testament. So James was brought up in the home of Mary and Joseph, a godly couple, drenched in the scriptures. And his eyes are opened after the resurrection. And God translates that building by his parents to make him a great leader for the cause of Christ. And he gives us this book in the New Testament. And it is that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is writing to the dispersed or the scattered ones, have you ever been scattered, transferred? Some of you are in the Marine Corps or in the Navy, and, and you get scattered every few years. And it's so exciting. I love the dimension that the Marines and the Navy personnel bring to this church. And some leave behind them someone they, they've introduced into the kingdom. And then some will find Christ here, and they're sent to different states and different countries, and they're paid for missionaries underwritten by the U.S. government. I love it. Listen, you need to see your circumstances not as accidental, but as providential. Finally, why did James write this book? Why did he write it? Now, I think most of you know that every New Testament book is written for a reason. Different books address different questions and areas of theology that God knows that his people are going to need throughout the centuries until Jesus comes. For instance, the Corinthians asked Paul a bunch of questions starting in chapter 7, and he ticks them off, not to mention all the issues of carnality that he has to address. Galatians warns against legalism and false teaching. Jude was written so that you can spot apostates who craftily sneak into the local church but are not true pastors. And the epistle of James is written early in the first century, largely to deal with Christians who are being persecuted. They had already been scattered by the persecution of Acts 8, and a second wave of persecution is soon going to fall that will draw the rest of them out to Rome and out of Israel. 
And so there were Jewish people whose businesses were being boycotted, who had been rejected by their families. And by the way, I think there's persecution coming. I don't tweet very often. If you follow me on Twitter, I only tweet about every, I don't know, couple of months. But I tweeted out something yesterday. What's happening in Australia, where you have Christian born-again foster parents who are considered unfit because of their view of transgenderism. And they said, look, we're willing to take transgender kids even. No, you're unfit. And I wonder how soon it will be before our own government will say to parents, you are unfit, you are a dangerous parent, you have an eight-year-old who in the school was taught transgenderism, he wants to change his sex, you're a dangerous parent not to let him do what he wants to do. You say, that will never happen. Look, if we talked about this subject 20 years ago, you would have said, that's unbelievable. I mean, it's almost ridiculous that a man would say he wants to become a woman or a woman wants to become a man. You're out of your mind. If that's the perversion of our day, persecution is coming. And this book is going to be incredibly helpful. Now, read through it this week. And there are four or five key words that I would like you to look for this week. One, the word wisdom. There's a lot of practical wisdom in this little book. And so it's often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. He will admonish us here in the opening chapter. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Secondly, look for the word faith. James will describe and define a very realistic kind of faith in terms of how you put it into practice so that one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament is found in this epistle. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And quite frankly, life has some great grim, threatening, and unsafe aspects to it, and we need to learn to walk by faith. A third key word that you might want to look for this week is the tongue. It's a subject that is in everyone's mouth. And of course, the difference between a mature person and an immature person deals with the tongue. And so he will say we all sin or stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a teleos man, able to bridle the whole body as well. The fourth key word that you want to look for this week is the word world. He will tell us not to hold too tightly to the world's riches and to shun the value system that it propagates. He will say, you adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, not of worldly people, Christ loves sinners... But the value system of the world, don't tell me you're an evangelical and you think transgenderism, is, you're, you've got a twisted mind. That's not evidence of a regenerated person. Don't tell me that it's okay to have same-sex attraction. Listen, that's the value system of the world. The person who makes himself a friend of the world because they want to be liked by the world makes himself an enemy of God. A fifth key word is the word prayer. Outside of the Gospels, this writer, James, says more about prayer than any other New Testament writer, and he will recognize how critical it is to the persecution they are facing. And so he starts with prayer, and he will end the letter with prayer that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So look for those. Now, how are we going to apply this this week? Let me share some applications as we close. Number one, James challenges our perspective on what a true Christian is. 
We learn right here in the front door of the letter, James will say that a person who is a true Christian, who has genuine faith, is a person who is like Christ. And we live in a day of Christless Christianity, a day which people can promise you, this is your best life now. It might be for some, because hell is a whole lot worse. That Jesus is here to make you happy, to heal you, to make you wealthy, to make you feel good, to give you a better marriage, but not to be his slave. James, a slave of Christ. We live in a day of self-centered Christianity where these men and women are preaching what Paul calls another Jesus In fact, the reason the average church in America never opens the book of James is because the way the opening chapter starts, finding joy in trials, they they, they can't reason that because it's antithetical to the theology and the message that they preach. And so people try out their Jesus until they hit a bump in the road. Hey, I thought you told me that Jesus had a wonderful plan for my life. A miscarriage isn't that wonderful. Sickness isn't that wonderful. A cheating spouse isn't that wonderful. A child that dies isn't that wonderful. Suffering persecution, that's not wonderful. So James is going to challenge our perspective on what a Christian is. Secondly, James will challenge our perspective on what a bondservant is. Here again in the opening verse, he identifies himself as a bondservant. And throughout this book, he is going to give you and I an invitation to a life of slavery. Jesus said, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. All the way through the gospels and the epistles, the very ingredients of salvation comes out of a slave culture. And so slave terminology is used. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. We are bond slaves. Jesus will say to those who have lived their life for him, well done, thy good and faithful. Same word, doulos, slave, bond servant. But sadly in our day, the gospel has been twisted to fit the likes of people. And so the message is, come to Jesus for a thrill ride, but not to be his slave, not to deny yourself. And so I would ask you this morning, whose slave are you? We went to China 18 months ago to take the discovery class material that we've been teaching on Wednesday night, basic discipleship, and to translate it into Mandarin. And we had to jump through a number of hoops. And by the way, when you think of places like China and Iran... Don't always think of them as the enemy. Look, there's real born-again believers in Iran. I don't know if you ever pray for the church in Iran. There's a whole lot more believers in China than there are in this country. And so they got permission to take my discovery class material, translate it into Mandarin, and God willing, we'll go back after COVID, and we're supposed to teach it to some 4,000 pastors. But one of the highlights for me of this last trip to China was to go to the graveside of that great 19th century Protestant Christian missionary named Hudson Taylor. I read his book, Taylor's Spiritual Secrets, when I was a brand new Christian, and what a challenge it was to my life. 
And so when I saw we had the opportunity to go to the place where he was actually buried with his family members, I wanted to go there. In fact, they are so grateful, the Chinese people, for what he did. They built a whole structure around the whole place. He went there, not like the typical missionary, oh, we're going to build, you know, a white frame New England church and do what we do up in the Northeast and bring it to China. No, he went there. He said, I'm going to eat like the Chinese people. I'm going to dress like the Chinese people. I'm going to cut my hair like the Chinese people. I'm going to be all things to all men. I'm going to be sensitive to this culture. And God used them to plant church after church after church. He visited China 11 times. He spent a total of 51 years there. And he suffered many hardships, arrests, insults, slander, poverty. He buried his wife and four of his eight children there. And when he came home, he said, I never, <laughs> I never made a sacrifice for Christ. On one occasion, he's in Australia. It's the end of his life. He's introduced as an old man. And the person emceeing went on through all of his works and accomplishments. And finally, he says, here is our illustrious guest, Hudson Taylor. And he walked into the pulpit. He said, dear friends, and I quote, I am the servant of an illustrious master. Sounds like James 1.1. That's what we need today. Some men and women who will be slaves of Christ. And James is going to pull back the veneer and give us a spiritual physical. And I hope we'll be ready to hear and to apply. Now, our Holy Father, you're so good so kind, so loving. In the deadness of our sin, you rescued us through the preaching of the gospel. Thank you, as this apostle said, we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Thank you for this same writer who told us that we are to long for this truth that we might grow in respect to our salvation. And so in these months ahead, we pray that our hearts would be ready. I know, Father, there's always people listening every week who can't even begin to take the first step to grow because they've never received your son. Help them to realize that Jesus paid their debt in full, and if they will acknowledge their sin as sin and put their faith where you put their sin on Christ, that Christ Jesus receives sinful men. You said it is a trustworthy statement that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So help someone today in faith, taking you at your word to say and believe what you promised, Lord Jesus, save me. And give them the courage to become part of a New Testament Bible-believing church wherever in the world they are listening. And to take those first steps to confess Jesus as Lord and to be baptized as an emblem of their faith. But for those of us who've already crossed that line, may this not be just another study of another book of the Bible, but may it be life-changing. May you use it 
that we might be instruments and trophies of your grace. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 001. When you call or visit online, please consider contributing to the ministry of Search the Scriptures. Your generous donation helps us air the messages of Dr. Carl Brogy locally, through partners across the nation, and virtually across the globe. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will begin a new message as he continues to examine the book of James. Join us then as we search the scriptures.